Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 25 to chapter 6, verse 5. Hear now the reading of the Word of God. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then the reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Lord, we once again appreciate and are thankful for your word. We recognize that it is by your word that you sanctify us. Lord, would you do that now? As we hear your word, would you please convict us as needed and comfort us as well? In Jesus' name, amen. A couple comes from church and comes to you and tells you that after 30 years of marriage, they're seeking a divorce. Or a man in church shares with you his struggle with pornography. Or your friend from school shares with you in confidence that she cuts herself. Your child tells you that He thinks he is a female in a male's body. Your friend, her husband, was just let go from his job, and now they no longer have any source of income. Or you learn that one of the married couples in this church that seems to have it all together actually fights and yells at each other nightly. What would you do? What would you say? Would you say to them, God is not going to give you more than you can handle? Would you say to them that God's got your back? And pat them on the back. Consider your Christian duty to be done. Would you say anything at all? Or would you ignore it? Perhaps you say, well, we're... We're just church people. We're, we're not professionals. We're not the pastor. We're not Pastor Steve. We're not one of the elders. It's not our job. Perhaps you say we're not qualified. Well, the biblical truth is that members in the church ought to be involved intimately in the lives of one another. And so we're going to look at a couple passages today that are going to remind us and encourage us that it is your duty and it is a delight to be intimately involved in the lives of one another, to counsel one another in love and in wisdom. We're going to see two ways that we do that. But before we look at those two ways, we need to lay the foundation 
we need to see three things that qualify us as people who can actually give godly counsel to one another. In Galatians chapter 5, the part that we didn't read, verses 16 and following, in this context, Paul has explained the differences between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are dissension, envy, jealousy, rivalry, enmity, idolatry, sensuality, drunkenness, fits of anger, and the like. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He reminds us that we ought to be about the business of the Spirit. If we say that we live by the Spirit, then we need to walk by the Spirit. We need to be in step with the ways of the Spirit. As soldiers are in step with one another, we too are to be in step with the ways of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, after all, who has transformed our hearts. It is the Holy Spirit who has given us new spiritual life. It is the Holy Spirit who works in us to will and do of of God's good pleasure to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And as the Holy Spirit who will one day bring to completion the work that was begun at conversion. And so if we have this new life from the Spirit, we need to follow the Spirit. There is a standard of conduct. There are certain expectations that are before us as members of of a church as people who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, of people who have the Spirit indwelling them. Our fruit, our desires should be in conformity with the ways of the Spirit. And so in verse 26, he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul warns us against this fleshly mindset, against this anti-spirit mindset. He wants us to put away our worldly ways, our former patterns of living. He wants us to put on new ways, ways marked by the Spirit, because the Spirit isn't conceited. The Spirit doesn't provoke us to wrath. The Spirit doesn't envy us, nor should we become conceited nor should we provoke one another to wrath, and nor should we be envious of one another. And so if we're living by this Spirit, we're not going to give in to the temptation of our own hearts or from without to provoke, to be conceited, to challenge one another, somehow thinking that our righteousness is better than theirs. We're going to avoid that temptation. We won't be jealous of one another in these ways. But rather we're going to recognize that the work of the Spirit that's being done in our lives is being done in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And so as we see three aspects that qualify us, this is the first one, that Paul calls us brothers and sisters. 
This is one of the three reasons that qualify you to give counsel to one another. To give godly counsel, done in love and grace. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, brothers. At this point, he's not excluding half the population. This word could be translated brothers and sisters. So women are not off the hook on this one. By grace, we have been adopted into God's family. We have been transferred from that dominion of darkness in which our former father was the devil. This old way of living, this life of misery, of wickedness, of enslavement to our own sin, of death and condemnation and destruction and wrath, We've been taken away from that family. And we've been put into a new family. We've been adopted as sons of God. Heirs with Christ. And now we live in a family wherein righteousness dwells. One that is characterized by the Holy Spirit. One filled with light and life and forgiveness and and mercy and grace. And God's blessed presence. This is the new family that we are a part of. For many of us, when we are closest to our own blood relatives, for most of us, perhaps, when we are trying to decide what to do with our money or how to spend our time, the motto typically holds true, family first. We would be more quick to give of our time and resources to our family than we would be to our friends or strangers, and of course, our enemies. Through this divine adoption, we now, you guys now share a common bond. You share a bond that is unlike any other bond. You share a bond that is tied with Christ. Because you have Christ, you share this unique bond. This is one that cannot be broken, because this bond has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Even our own biological brotherhood, if it is not grounded in Christ, cannot compare to that unique connection and bond that you have with one another, that we have with you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, John 1.12 says, those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not everyone has become a child of God. Not everyone can call himself a child of God. But only those who received Jesus, who welcomed Jesus, who called upon his name, who trusted in him and in him alone for salvation. Only those are the ones that the Father has given the right, the authority, to become children of God. And if we are children of God, if we are brothers and sisters, then we ought to act like brothers and sisters. And I don't mean brothers and sisters who are constantly at each other's throats. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean brothers and sisters who are at their best, those who are loving one another, who are giving of their time, of their resources, who are praying for one another, who are encouraging one another. That is how we ought to be. 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This qualifies us to speak, to counsel one another. The second aspect is that Paul calls us spiritual. If we are children of God, then we have the Holy Spirit together. He says, you who are spiritual, in verse 1 of chapter 6. When he says, you who are spiritual, he says that we are spirit people. This is uppercase S, spirit people. This is not Paul's time to say, well, let me explain to you that each person has a body and a spirit. No. Even unbelievers have a spirit in that sense, that immaterial aspect of a person's life that will go on either to eternity in blessedness or condemnation. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that you are spirit people. You have lives that are characterized by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells you. He inhabits your very being. And so your lives are quite different from the lives of unbelievers. You are spirit people. And so you show evidence of that spirit by expressing love, joy, peace, and the other fruit of the spirit. Because you are spirit people, this qualifies you to speak into the people's lives, to counsel one another in love and in wisdom. And because we are spirit people and because we are God's children, because God has adopted us, he speaks to us. He has given us his word. This is the third aspect that qualifies us. You are brothers and sisters, you are spirit people, and you have God's word. Because we have God's word, this puts us in the position where we can now counsel one another. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you want to know how to live? Do you want to know how to be godly? God has granted unto you all things, not some things. He doesn't take you to a certain point of sanctification and then say you're on your own. He doesn't just save you and say, all right, good luck with your journey of holiness doesn't do that. He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Those are big categories. Life and godliness. He has given to us these things in his word. Jesus, just before he was betrayed and arrested and crucified, in John 17, when he's praying to the Father, he's praying for his disciples and for all those who would believe on account of the testimony of the disciples about Jesus. He prays that the Father would sanctify them, that he would set them apart, that he would cause them to be more and more in the image of God who created him. And they are to do this, or God's going to do this in truth. And then he says, your word is truth. It isn't just a, it isn't just one thing among many that's true. It isn't just one book among many that contains truth. God's word is truth. It is the very standard, the very measure by which we determine what is true. And God has given us his word. He has equipped us with his word to counsel one another. 
Romans 15, 14. Paul says, my brothers, there it is again. Paul's referring to them as brothers. My brothers, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Again, he calls them brothers. And he says that they are full of goodness. They could only be full of goodness if they have the Spirit, if they are spirit people, because goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. No unbeliever is good. No one is good. No one is righteous. No, not one, apart from the Spirit. And so these brothers in Rome are full of goodness, and they're filled with all knowledge. This does not mean that they are now somehow omniscient, that they have every bit of knowledge that there could be, in which case they would be God. But they have all the knowledge they need because now they are able to instruct one another. These aren't professionals. These aren't therapists. These aren't pastors. These are your typical Roman Joe Schmoes. And Paul is saying that they are able to instruct one another. Able to instruct one another in what ways? Well, in the ways of the Spirit. Counseling one another. Encouraging one another. This is how, this is what gives them, or this is how they are able, because they have God's Word. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately brings about change. We can't do this by ourselves. And that's why he says in verse 3, back in our text, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. By himself, the believer cannot create real lasting change either in his life or in life of another. The Holy Spirit is necessary. But if we're living by the Holy Spirit, we have all that we need to counsel one another when our brothers and sisters fall into sin, when issues of sin and suffering arise. We have what we need. You wouldn't go to a mechanic to get a root canal done, unless, of course, he doubles as a dentist, which I doubt. You wouldn't do that. He's not credentialed in that area. You wouldn't trust him with those kinds of tools. So why would we go to people who do not have the Spirit, who are not our brothers and sisters in Christ, who do not have God's Word or recognize it as God's Word, as the ultimate authority, the infallible, inerrant Word of God that it is, why would we go to them whose worldview you do not share, in fact, whose worldview is absolutely antithetical to your own, why go to them when issues of sin and suffering arise and you need good counsel? doesn't make sense. Who better to go to than those who have that common bond, those who have the Spirit, who have God's Word, and who are equipped? Should be a no-brainer. But it's sad that many in the church today do not see themselves or see one another as tools that God uses to bring about real change. We think that this is the job just for the, the pastor, 
or the professional. When in reality, these passages are clear. It is the people of God who have the Spirit, who have God's Word. It is these people, by the Spirit, who can create real, lasting change in the lives of one another. And so that's laying down the foundation. We have God's Spirit, we are brothers and sisters, and we have God's Word. These three qualify us to counsel one another in love and in wisdom. Now that we've laid this foundation, we see just a couple ways in which we spirit-driven siblings serve one another. The first way is found in verse 1. It has to do with restoring a sinner. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Even though we have the Spirit, even though we have God's Word, we sin. We haven't been perfected in this life. Sinners sin, even repentant ones. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The words of Romans 7 resonate with our hearts. We understand, Paul. We're there with you, Paul, when Paul says, The thing that I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. We understand that. And so believers sin, even though they have the Spirit and God's Word. There are times when we are caught in transgressions. When Paul says, when he refers to someone who is caught in any transgression, he is referring to an unexpected sin. A sin for which the believer no doubt is still responsible. Nobody is putting a gun to his head and forcing him to sin. He is still responsible for his sin. But it is still a sin that he has somehow found himself ensnared by. He didn't know exactly how he got there. One wrong thought or one misstep and he's on the road to destruction and he's trapped by his sin. In such a a situation, Paul tells us that we who are spiritual, we who have the Spirit, are to restore that fallen brother, that fallen sister. Restoring, in Paul's day, this word referred to the mending of a net or the setting aright of a broken bone. And so that's our metaphorical calling. We are to mend the nets of our brothers and sisters or to set our brothers and sisters' broken bones aright. That is our calling. We are to restore our brother who has fallen. We're not the best at this. We're not very good at times at dealing with sin. Sometimes we ignore the sin. We don't want to come across as judgmental. Well, I'm a sinner, just like that person is. Who am I to say anything to that person when I got my own problems? And we forget that Paul tells us elsewhere that it's the people of God who are to judge the people of God. We're not to judge those on the outside, but we are to interact with one another and share one another our struggles and to reveal or expose the sins of another, because a person might be deceived. 
At times we don't want to be offensive, so we ignore it. Or the fear of man has crippled us, so much so that we don't even utter a word about the person that we know to be in sin. What are they going to say about us? Are they going to still be our friends? Are they going to think differently of us if we say something? The fear of man immobilizes us at times. At times we gossip. We say, oh, last night I had dinner with Jake and his family, and it was, it was quite sad that he blew up at his family last night. You should pray for him. You really should. He needs your prayer. Involving somebody who shouldn't be involved. And disguising it in a prayer request. At times we do that. At other times, we even ironically condemn sinners in need of grace for being sinners in need of grace. Thinking, come on, you're better than this. You should have victory over this sin. I can't believe you're struggling with this. Forgetting, of course, that no sin is off the table. Even believers sin grievously. Think of David. Man after God's own heart. Did things that probably none of you has done. I hope none of you have murdered anybody. But I don't know. Yet, he found grace. Our task as brothers and sisters in Christ is to help people to confess their sin, to find forgiveness, to find strength, to find the grace that they need to continue walking this walk of holiness, this walk with the Lord, putting off worldly ways, old patterns of living that have still attached themselves to us, and putting on new ways of living, ways characterized by the Spirit. By their own admission, Chad and Sarah were nominal, self-absorbed Christians who looked for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Early on in their marriage, Chad and Sarah had introduced pornography and heavy drinking to add a bit of excitement and spice to the marriage bed. About four years into the marriage, Sarah had been so steeped into this pornography that she began an on-again, off-again affair she was having for three years. One day, Sarah was having lunch with her friend, and her friend looked at Sarah and said, you're having an affair, aren't you? No, I'm not having an affair. What are you, what are you talking about? Where would you come up with that kind of idea? I love Chad. I'm not having an affair. No, you are. I've noticed. I can tell. Haven't you? Yes. She admits that she is having an affair. And at the insistence of her friend, she agrees to tell Chad. About a month had gone by, and Sarah's friend called her on the phone. Hey, Sarah, I've been praying about you, thinking about you. Have you told Chad yet? No, I haven't. I will. It just isn't the right time. It never seems to be the right time to tell him. A little later, 
sometime later on Sunday morning as Chad and Sarah were um, walking down the hall after a worship service, the pastor and his wife and the associate pastor and his wife approached them and, and asked them if they could meet in the pastor's office. They agreed. They thought nothing of it. They thought, well, maybe there, there have been times when they have come to Sunday worship a little hungover, so maybe somebody in the church had seen them at the bar drinking. That's probably why the pastor wanted to talk to them. So when they get in the pastor's office, the pastor looks at Sarah, says, we, we know that there is something you need to tell your husband. At that point, Sarah realized that it was her friend who revealed the affair to the pastor. And so she had a choice. She going to continue hiding this affair, which is not really hidden. Or is she going to fess up and start the journey of being restored? And so she agreed to uh, talk to Chad. So she does. They, they leave the just Sarah and Chad in the office. The others are le- leaving and they're praying for them. Of course, Chad, upon hearing this, is infuriated, but saddened as well. And he recognized that he had a, a hand in this. Of course, Sarah was responsible for the affair, but as the head, he did a horrible job leading his wife, loving his wife. And that was the start of their restoration. Restoration as individuals, as Believers and restoration of their marriage. All because out of love, Sarah's friend refused to see Sarah continue in her sin and persisted in seeing Sarah restored to her Savior. We are to do this. Paul tells us we're to do this gently, in a spirit of gentleness keeping watch on herself, lest we too be tempted. Paul knows that it hurts to have our sins exposed. It hurts to set aright a broken bone. It hurts to be vulnerable. Paul knows this, and so he says, we got to do this gently. Spirit people are not going to be harsh in their restoration. They're going to approach the situations with grace, with meekness, with care, with humility, taking heed lest we fall as well. That's what Paul warns us. He warns believers to restore this person, but also to keep watch on themselves, lest they be tempted. But tempted to do what? A couple things. Tempted towards self-righteousness, towards pride, towards that conceit that Paul warns about in verse 25. Thinking that somehow we're better than our brother who has fallen. Well, I'm not struggling with that anger problem that he is. I don't cut myself like she does. I don't have a pornography problem like they do. I'm not having an affair. Tempted to think that we are somehow better. That we've made it and and they haven't. Paul warns us against that temptation, but also a temptation to fall into the very sin in which this fallen brother has been ensnared. We might rationalize it. 
well, the person has a pornography problem, and I'm his accountability partner, so I'm going to check out those websites that he is looking at just to see what he's looking at. I've got to make sure. I've got to know everything. I've got to have the whole situation. Get your toe in the water there, and soon enough, you've got an ocean of sin engulfing you. As you talk to a person who has an anger problem, who's angry at her husband, you hear this, yeah, you, you are angry. You have every reason to be angry, and I'm angry with you. Let's give him the full extent of the law. Paul warns against those temptations. We need to be careful, gracious, gentle, always depending on the Holy Spirit, always recognizing that were it not for the grace of God, there go we. Doing so gently, speaking the truth in love, knowing that God speaks the truth to us in love, in grace. And as we restore the wayward sinner, we are acting as signposts, pointing the sinner to Christ, pointing him to Jesus, who alone ultimately restores us from our sins. Us who see our sin, who confess our sin, repent of our ways and turn to Jesus. In addition to restoring our fallen brothers and sisters, we who are spirit-driven siblings, we who have the Word of God, will bear one another's burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A burdenless life is not one that any Christian or anyone really will ever live. You will have burdens. You have them now, I'm sure. Everyone has burdens to some degree or another. These are those heavy weights that just push us down, and many examples abound. Divorce, disability, pain, sorrow, anxiety, poverty, loss of job, doubting, the consequences of our own sin, depression, and many more. These are those burdens that try to crush us. And they're hard to bear. And we cannot bear them ourselves, lest we be crushed under their weightiness. Ultimately, of course, there's only one who, has, who can bear our burdens. Just like there is ultimately only one who can restore a fallen brother. That's God through Christ. Jesus Christ has borne your guilt and your sin. And he has borne the penalty due your sin. This is true. But the Lord in his wisdom has ordered the Christian life in such a way that we, brothers and sisters, you, members of Desert Springs, share the load of one another, lighten the load of one another. God has ordered the life to be that way. Philip Reich in his commentary on Galatians says, Every believer is called to be one of God's bellhops, always ready to pick up someone else's baggage. And this is pictured perfectly in J.R. Tolkien's literary masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, in the character Samwise Gamgee. If you've read the books or you've watched the movies, you know Samwise is the best character in that series, by far. Oh, my, this guy is 
steadfast, a servant. He doesn't insist on his own way. He's gracious. He's courageous as well. And he loves Frodo to the end. If you know this story, Frodo has this ring that he has to destroy. He's been given this task, a very heavy task, to destroy this ring in the mountain of Mordor so that peace can reign again on the earth. And as you read or watch this story unfold, you see that this ring is just eating Frodo up inside, just tearing at him. And he is tempted, in fact, even gives in to temptation at times to put the ring on, to escape pain and punishment, to feel a little bit of the power. Towards the end, as they are ascending the mountain of Mordor, Frodo, he's had enough. He just collapses. He can't do it anymore. He can't go on. But Samwise, the ever-faithful Samwise, comes to his aid, and he picks up Frodo carries him on his back and ascends the mountain until Frodo can, can walk again. He's bearing Frodo's burden. We are to bear one another's burdens. We do, these in, we do this in very practical ways. We can do this with works ministry by serving. By making meals for one another. By hugging one another. Genuinely hugging one another. By writing very sincere, heartfelt card to someone who needs it. By babysitting for that couple that needs a date night. Cleaning that yard. Or cleaning up that house of that one who is not able to do so. Or has too many kids at this time to even just get a handle. It's overwhelming. We do this through prayer. Generally, praying for one another, yes, but specifically. I'm aware of your situation, and I'm, I'm praying for you specifically, at whatever it might be. Or we ask, how can I bear this burden of yours? I want to come alongside you. How can I pray for you specifically for the next week or two or month or however long, however long you need? We do this by works of the Word, by reminding one another of the truth of God, God's character, God's promises. God hasn't left you. He is your ever-present trouble and help of need. He is your shepherd. He is good. This is for your good, even though it might not seem it. This is for the glory of God. We do this these ways. These are just a few of the ways that we can fulfill the law of Christ to love our brothers and sisters more than ourselves. But what about verse 5? For each will have to bear his own load. Paul, in verse 2 you said we are to bear one another's burdens. Then in verse 5 you say each person's got to bear his own load. Are you contradicting yourself, Paul? Well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not going to contradict himself three verses later. What Paul has in mind here is individual personal responsibility at Judgment Day. It is true that you owe each other your gifts. If you are an ear, you owe your gift of hearing. If you're an eye, your gift of sight. 
Mao with the gift of speaking. You owe each other. Each other. You're all members of one body. But I'm not going to be with you bearing your burden, nor will you be with anyone else bearing a person's burden on judgment day. You are responsible for what you do with God's gifts. And you're responsible for how you respond to the providence of God. How you respond to the situations in which God has placed you. You guys can't do that for another person. But as you're here on earth, you can lighten the loads of each other. Going back to the beginning then, are you qualified to counsel that couple that's considering a divorce? That man struggling with pornography? That girl who cuts herself? That boy who thinks he's a female in a male's body? That couple that screams at each other? Yes, you are qualified. You have all the resources you need. You have each other. You have God's word. You have the spirit. You have access to the throne of grace. You have all that you need. I recognize that this is, this might be a difficulty for a lot of us, for all of us, especially those whose temperaments bristle at being involved intimately. If you are perhaps an introvert, I share that as well. But this is the testimony of Scripture. And be encouraged that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in ordinary people. He uses you to help you. And you're not supposed to be perfect. You can't wait to be perfect in order to help somebody. You'll be waiting forever. In 1790, a small Baptist church in England signed a covenant to treat each other according to the ways of Galatians 6. This is the covenant they wrote out and they signed. They promised to walk in love toward those with whom we stand connected in the bonds of Christian fellowship. As an effect of this, we will pray much for one another. As we have opportunity, we will associate together for religious purposes. Those of us who are in more comfortable situations in life than some of our brethren, with regard to the good things of providence, will administer as we have ability and see occasion to their necessities. We will bear one another's burdens, sympathize with the afflicted in body and mind, so far as we know their case under their trials. And as we see occasion, advise, caution, and encourage one another. We will watch over one another for good. We will studiously avoid giving or taking offenses. Thus, we will make it our study to fulfill the law of Christ. This is the covenant they made. We have no idea how well they fulfilled this covenant. No doubt they did so imperfectly. But to the degree that they relied on the Holy Spirit and his word and on each other, they did this for the glory of God. Our great Redeemer's goal is to redeem a people 
to seek out a people and then to save that people. But not to end there, but to sanctify that people. To bring them more in conformity with his image, his likeness. God does this through relationships. Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, says this, Our relationships are the context for the change he works in and through us. Then he asks this question, Are we willing to involve ourselves in things we would normally avoid so that Christ would change someone through us? My prayer is that we would be so willing. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word, your spirit, and each other. And we thank you for your good graces in our lives. Would you please, Lord, help us to be in a position to restore our fallen brother and to bear his burdens so that you could be glorified by the sanctification of our brothers and sisters. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.